Good morning, my name is Kyle, and as Joshua said earlier, we are in a series on uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and and so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and to turn to that passage that was just read. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles for you off the um, tables by the entrances. You can get up and get one, and uh, those are some challenging words, aren't they? So I need to pray for us. Let me pray. Jesus, your word is truth. Help us to believe it and to receive the truth that the truth might set us free and that we might walk out here as your liberated sons and daughters, free indeed. We pray these things that you might have the rewards of your sufferings. Amen. Well, maybe something to know about me, if you don't already, if you haven't picked this up based on all my illustrations, is that I like food. I really like food. Like this morning, Pam, Pam made bread. Uh, I'm not going to tell you that illustration again. Um, so, but she made bread uh, again, and it had salt, and it was lovely. And she said, do you want avocado toast or, you know, this like ham and, and cheese? And I was like, I want both. And so I had both. Uh, I love food. And I like to go check out new restaurants. But here's the thing about new restaurants. You go to a new restaurant, and they've got their list of things. And I'm very discerning about what I choose because I'm looking at at what they've got on there. And are you like me where you say, "I, I want this, but I don't want it with this. And actually, if you could substitute this, and then if you could put this, you know, leave the tomatoes. I won't do these tomatoes. I'll do sun dried tomatoes. And then I won't, you know what I'm talking about, right? And what I'm basically doing is I'm going in and I'm saying like, I know that the chef has spent a lot of time and thought about these things, but I hate to break it to you. I kind of know better than the chef, right? Like, I know better, except there are a couple restaurants where they can put before me, the chef can put before me something that I know I don't like, and I will still take it how they serve it, and I will like it because I'm like, this chef I trust, and I'm all in. Well, we are in a series on a Sermon on the Mount. A Sermon on the Mount is the most famous teaching of Jesus. It's kind of a truism that people think that Jesus was a great moral teacher. And most will say, you know, I I could do without the church, I could do without uh, organized religion, but Jesus' teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, I will take that. Yes, give me the Sermon on the Mount. If only everyone would live by the Sermon on the Mount. Really? What about verse 28 of Matthew chapter 5? Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Love the Sermon on the Mount? Or what about verse 29? If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. I love Jesus. He's a great moral teacher. I could do without Christianity, but I love his teaching. Are you sure? What about verse 32? I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. 
And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I mean, let's be honest. It's not just those of us in here who are seeking after Jesus or wondering whether or not Christianity could be true and are discerning this thing. It's even the church who wonders, do we, do we really think that Jesus knows best? I mean, do we really believe that this is the good life? That's why the Sermon on the Mount starts with poverty of spirit. That's the gateway. That's the entrance. Because in order to enter this sermon, we, we, have, to actually, we have to actually be willing to admit that not only do we have, not have the ability to perform the good life, we don't even have the ability to discern the good life. And so we're saying, when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we have to say this is the question that it, it puts before us. I should say, does Jesus know better? Does Jesus know better what makes for human flourishing? Does Jesus know better when it comes to your flourishing? Does Jesus know better when it comes to dealing with conflict? Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder And whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. Jesus is starting here with the sixth commandment. The sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. And most of us, uh, pretty much everywhere and all the time, people are are pretty good with this command, right? They're pretty good saying like, absolutely, I don't think we should murder someone else. Murder is wrong. And those who murder should be judged. And and then we feel pretty good about ourselves because we're like, well, I'm not such a bad person. I mean, I haven't murdered anyone. And Jesus says, ah, not so fast. Verse 22. You have heard it said, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, another thing about me that you might not know is that I like crime shows. I, I just, like, love crime shows. And it doesn't matter if it's a really good crime show like Sherlock or, let's admit it, a kind of poor, poorly written crime show like CSI. I get kind of hooked. But here's the thing about crime shows. Any crime show, as you watch it, you're always going to hear the phrase. At some point in time, somebody's going to come in, and they're going to look at the cadaver, and there's going to be this moment where they say, you know, very astutely, and very like, it's almost like this epiphany, right? And they've got this profound thing to say, and they go, blunt force trauma. Blunt force trauma. Killed death by blunt force trauma. Well, as Sinclair Ferguson says, Jesus here is saying, It's not just blunt force trauma, it's also sharp tongue trauma that can kill someone. You know, I as a pastor, I get to I get to listen to people's stories. It's amazing how often in listening to people's stories, it's a few words that were spoken to them by a parent or a coach, or a teacher that, that actually set the course on their life as far as their self-identity and how they interact with the world and how they think about themselves. 
And, and, and oftentimes these words, well, they have sucked the life right out of them. See, Jesus says there's more than one way to murder. And you can kill somebody with your words. And so he says, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Whoa, 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 hell of fire? Really? I mean, that's a little extreme, isn't it? And besides, I mean, didn't Jesus get angry? Like when he went into the temple and he saw the money uh, collectors in the temple filling up the Gentile course, didn't he get angry? And Jesus, didn't he actually call people names? Like the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 17, when he calls the scribes and the Pharisees blind fools? Same word. So Jesus got angry. Jesus called people fools. Like, what are we supposed to do with this? Well, listen, Jesus is not making a blanket statement against anger of every form. The problem is not anger. The problem is not anger. And the question is not, do you get angry? The reality is, is that as humans, God has given us this emotion, this emotion of anger. And anger shows us where our values are. And and you know what? Like when you see injustice, when you see wrongs in this world, you should get angry. You should get angry about child abuse. You should get angry about sex trafficking. You should get angry about about racial uh, um, about racial uh, oppression, and you should get angry about systematic discrimination, the exploitation of women. You should get angry. But we also get angry for other things that we value when we value things like wrongly, inordinately. We value power and control and money and a name. Those are called idols. We can also value those. So there's there's righteous forms of anger and, and unrighteous forms of anger. But Jesus's main concern is whether or not your anger is concerned by a righteous, uh, it arises from in a righteous form or an unrighteous form. Jesus wants to know, what are you going to do with that anger? Are you going to deal with your anger? And that's why he wants you to do something with your anger. See, see, this is the difference between the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees and the righteousness of Jesus' followers. See, we think, we've been taught, I've been taught, that the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees was external, and Jesus wants an internal righteousness, right? Jesus is going beyond external righteousness to just the keeping the letter of the law to an internal righteousness. The scribes and the Pharisees cared about your heart, and they cared about your motivations. It's, it's not just that. Jesus is going beyond external righteousness. He's also going beyond internal righteousness. Jesus is wanting, actually, a righteousness that is relational, that is social, that acts, that does things, and that's why that actively seeks to bring reconciliation and peace. See, this is the problem with moralism. Moralism abstracts righteousness and goodness from relationships. 
It's all about me and being a good person and keeping the the law and making sure I check all the boxes. And Jesus says, not enough. And my kingdom is about more because that's how God's righteousness is enacted in the gospel. The gospel is God's righteousness, which is a transformative power, which comes and changes things and sets the world to rights. And he says, in my kingdom, that's how I want you to act. And he gives us two illustrations. The first has to do with what in the Old Testament is called the peace offering. Verses 23 and 24, he says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Uh, The picture is of a person in worship, and there they are at worship, and they are about to offer what's called the peace offering or the reconciliation offering. And that's the offering that shows or that demonstrates that you are at peace with God and neighbor. The Passover was one of these. And you sit down and you eat this meal, and this meal was supposed to show we are at peace, which is why in the Old Testament, when you get the, when you get the Passover, uh, the instructions are, do not split the lamb and send it out to the slaves. You invite the slaves in because at this meal you are at peace and you're reconciled and you're all equal at this table. And this is the one he's talking about. And he says, look, if you are about to offer the peace offering and you remember that your brother has something against you, stop. God is saying, make me wait. Go and reconcile with your brother because that is more important than worship in that moment because the thing that you're about to do, the thing you're about to do, it it, it means nothing if it actually hasn't been enacted in your relationships. This is the culmination of it. And and, and if, if, if God wants us to put off even worship... If God wants us to put off worship in order to reconcile with a brother and sister, then certainly he wants us to put off the Super Bowl and other things. He's saying make reconciliation a priority. I had a lovely conversation with some college students last week um, at the college lunch. And one of the things that, that one of the the folks was bringing up to me was the fact that they were appreciative of... Um, uh, our order of worship and our service and, the his- and worshiping as a historical church. Uh, but they wondered if there wasn't times where, and what the things that they appreciated in some of the other worship contexts that they had been in, is times in which they had been challenged to do things in the midst of the service, to step out in faith and to respond to God, particularly there and then. And sometimes I know people hear my sermons and they say, Kyle, I want you to make it practical. Okay, I'm going to make it really practical. You ready? All the church fathers saw that when Jesus used this word gift and this word altar, he was talking about the peace offering. And they also understood, if you go back and read the church fathers, the Greek fathers through the first couple centuries, this was talking about the Lord's Supper. Communion. So I've got, I'm I'm going to be really practical for you. We have a time of communion. Some of you need to get up at that time. Jesus is inviting you right now. And don't come here. Go to the back of the church. 
and get right with your brother or your sister. Some of you need to step out of this building and you need to make a phone call. Jesus is saying, make me wait. Reconcile with your brother. Reconcile with your sister in Christ. This is what I am calling for. And and notice Jesus says, notice he says, he doesn't say if your brother or sister has has, uh, a sin against you. He says a thing. The point is not whether or not it's a wrong thing or a right thing, whether they are just in thinking it or unjust in thinking it. The the only thing that matters is that there is a thing that is separating you from your brother or sister. And so go deal with the thing. And notice also how he frames it in verse 23. He says that they have something against you. Well, that's interesting. Because in Matthew 18, he says that, that you know, if, if someone has something, uh, in Matthew 18, he says, if some, somebody has, um, if you have something against somebody else, you're to go to them. And here he says, somebody has something against you. So which is it? Do I go if somebody has something against me, or do I go if I have something against somebody else? That's the point. The onus is always on you to go. You take the initiative. As God took the initiative, this is, this is the righteousness that Jesus is bringing about in his kingdom, a righteousness that seeks to make peace and make shalom and actively pursues situations of conflict. So listen to me, listen to me. If you're stuffing your anger, if you're not addressing your anger and allowing your anger to cause you to act, then you're not actually dealing with your anger and you're actually, you're actually in conflict with what Jesus is saying here. And Jesus knows that we have to seek reconciliation and we need to seek it fast or it will undo us. Which leads us to his next illustration. It's an illustration about two people going to court. Verse 25, he says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you pay the last penny. What Jesus is saying here in this illustration, he's saying, like, before this thing escalates, you seek reconciliation as soon as possible on the way to court so you don't even start court. Like, like early. Hey, you ever, um, I don't know if you're like me, but when I was younger, so I had a little brother. He's about five years younger than me. And I don't know how, but my little brother and I would always get into these, like, wars. Uh, they didn't start off as wars, of course. They started off with, like, me taking a pinky and touching him at dinner or sliding his plate. And then he would take my fork and move it. And then I would take his fork and throw it. And then he would take my, you know what I'm saying, right? And then just escalates, right? And and then you like go and you do something back to them and you like got them back and they're like, done, done, truce, we're even. But you're never even. And it keeps going up and up and up and up and it escalates and it ratchets. I mean, kids do this, don't they? But not adults, huh? Let's be honest. We know what this is like. 
That's why, you know, people so often, they come into me in my office and they're like, they're so deep in the conflict that it's like you can't even find a way back or out. So Jesus says, on your way to court, before this thing ratchets up, before this thing ratchets up, I, I had this, I'll never forget this. I was talking to, she was a friend in elementary school, and then she moved away, like a long way away, and she was back years later, and I was asking her about her family, and I found out, she said, I was like, how are your parents doing? She goes, well, they're fine. And I, then I started asking her like some more about it. She goes, well, they don't talk to one another. It's like, oh, well, they, they're separated. They live in a different house. I, I, they got a divorce. I'm sorry. No. They literally live in the same house, and they had not talked to one another, said one word for four years. Same house. Everything was communicated through the kids or through notes or something. They would not talk to one another. I mean, did they even know what they were fighting about anymore? But it had gotten so entrenched. And this is what happens. So Jesus says, deal with your anger because he knows, he knows how dismissing anger and where dismissing anger can lead and undealt with anger. Look at verse 22. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is saying if you do not deal with your anger, if you leave your anger unresolved, then you could wind up in court or in jail or worse. The hell of fire. It will eat you alive. And so you need to actually deal with your anger. And you need to allow it to move you towards righteous acts of reconciling love and peacemaking. See, it could lead to hell because God's holiness is at war with all bitterness and hatred in humanity. And God's wrath of love burns against everything that divides humans from one another. And so now do you see, do you see why we need to keep short accounts? I was on the, um, I was a beneficiary of this this week. Uh, you know, I had this great idea that I was going to put smart locks throughout our home. Um, the only thing that was bad about that is I didn't consult my wife at all. And we had actually, then I remembered, had a conversation where, you know, she was concerned, rightly, about the aesthetics of this thing. And I was too a little bit. But I just totally neglected her, totally um, uh, totally went and did this without her consent. And she said to me, she's like, well, I would have thought that we would have talked about that. And, you know, she came to keep short accounts. All marriages, you have to keep short accounts. In all human relationships, you have to keep short accounts. If you do not do this, then it will build up. Now, do you see why Jesus forbids the saying of uh, raka, which is the, the word translated insult or fool. 
The first word raka means to be mentally incompetent. The second word fool means to be morally incompetent. And do you see what the person, the problem is not with the names. The problem is not with saying the names. The problem is with what the names imply. The person who says those names is saying they are so mentally or morally incompetent or both that it's not even worth trying to seek peace with them. I mean, what's the use? And Jesus says, no, do not dismiss a fellow human being like that. Engage. Engage. So here's the question. Does Jesus know better than you when it comes to dealing with human conflict? Does Jesus know better than you when it comes to dealing with sexual desire? Next, Jesus moves from the sixth commandment about murder to the seventh commandment. He says in verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, the commandment itself is fairly innocuous and straightforward. Uh, Do not commit adultery means do not have sexual relations with someone who is uh, not your spouse, somebody else's spouse. Don't have uh, sexual relations outside of marriage. And, and, And for the most part, we all agree with this one too. For the most part, we all agree with this one until it's us, until it's our desires, until we no longer think that we can flourish in this relationship, until we believe that this other person is going to be, and having this other person is going to be what is for our flourishing. I I was talking to someone once who was, well, he was having a sexual relationship with another man's wife, and he, uh, and, and I heard him say that basically life's gray. And listen, I believe the life is gray. I see the world in gray. I see the world in various shades of gray. If you know me, I see the world in lots of gray. You know why I see the world in lots of gray? Because sin, like, messes everything up. And everything is gray as a result of sin. But Jesus makes things pretty clear. Look at verse 28. He ups the ante. He says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He intensifies the command in two ways. First, he says, verse 28, that everyone... It's no longer a married person. It's married, unmarried, it doesn't matter. If you actually seek to have sexual relations with someone who is not your spouse or you lustfully look at them, and this is where he intensifies it in a second way, it's no longer simply about a married person and and an unmarried person or two married people and they're not married to uh, and they're having sexual relations with someone who's not their spouse. Now it's anyone. And he says, he intensifies it by saying that you look at someone with lustful intent. He rules out any sexual thought or act that lies outside of God's design for human sexuality. And in the Bible, God's design for human sexuality is very clear, and there are no loopholes. It is one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage, a lifelong covenant. 
And so Jesus, he, he, he ratchets it up. Now, if you are new to Christianity, if you are visiting the church, if you're checking out the teachings of Jesus, then this is shocking in our culture, and I realize that. You think, how outdated? Who could still believe that? Because you know what? The Christian ethic has always been shocking. Uh, Some 70 years ago, C.S. Lewis wrote that chastity is the most unpopular of Christian virtues. If that's true 70 years ago, how much today? And if you read the ancient apologists and you read the ancient uh, perceptions of Christians, they said, they're so strange. They share their money with everyone and their beds with no one. I mean, the the Christian ethic has always been shocking. But if you're going to understand what Jesus is saying here, then first you have to come to grips with the nature of sex. Jesus is saying this not because he has such a low view of sex, but because he has such a high view of sex. Jesus has a very, very high view of sex. Jesus believes that sex is powerful. So powerful that it binds two people together. So powerful that that actually, if you're married to someone in the covenant community, this is 1 Corinthians 6, if you're married to someone, like, and then you have sex outside or sexual immorality, that actually leaves the community vulnerable to demonic forces. That's how powerful Jesus thinks it is. He has a very high view of it, but what do you do with things that are powerful? You actually have to make sure that they're constrained, they're boundaries, like fire. Sex is like fire. Fire is very powerful. Fire is very very important, very necessary. But you know, you don't want fire to run loose. If if you don't remember that here, just ask our friends in Australia right now. You do not want fire to run loose. And in the same way, you do not want sexual desire to run loose. Because... The purpose of sex was to bind people in covenant relationship together, to forge and further that covenant relationship. It's like what Cameron Diaz said to Tom Cruise in that awful movie, Vanilla Sky. She said, when you had sex with me, you made a promise to me with your body. Yes. <coughs> And it binds people together. It's covenant superglue. And you don't rip two people apart without there being a lot of blood and scars. <clears throat> and so Jesus says, be careful. But still, you say, well, why, why the lustful look? And by the way, what is Jesus ruling out? He is not ruling out. He is not saying that you can't find another person beautiful. It's the look with intent to lust. It's the look with the purpose of lusting. The question is, are you looking at someone in order to arouse, cultivate, nurture sexual desire? Or do you keep looking in order to arouse, cultivate, and nurture sexual desire? And Jesus says, if you do that, it's a problem. Here's why it's a problem. Because what you have done, in essence, is you have said, I want... I want the intimacy of sex without the vulnerability of a covenant. You said, I I want to, 
And then you said, you're basically saying, I want to, and I am going to use this person and objectify this person in their body in order to fulfill my own desires. You say, what's the big deal? I had someone who was not a Christian, and they were in my office once, and they were telling me about a struggle that they had. Um, and, and it was a struggle in their sexual relationship, but they also admitted to me that they were looking at pornography every night and they couldn't go to bed unless they did. But they said, it's, it, it's, not, it's not a big deal and it's not a problem because, uh, because it's really just physical. That's the problem. That it's purely physical. And that you're actually depersonalizing the other. See, because what happens is then we dehumanize and we objectify that person and their body becomes a commodity. And when we live in a society where bodies are commodities, do you know what the result is? Sex trafficking. The result is we need a Me Too movement. You know what else the result is? Just thousands upon thousands persons in the womb being discarded and treated as a commodity. And this is why, let me be very clear and let the reader understand, any attempt to support life in the womb while turning a blind eye to sexual immorality and the treating of women's bodies is so short-sighted and hypocritical. We have been played. Jesus is calling for his community to honor the body. All bodies. And to not treat the body as a commodity. And he wants us to understand the seriousness of the sin See, twice in verses 29 and 30, he says that it's better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Jesus says this has eternal consequences. So it requires drastic action and drastic measures. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Verse 30, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it out and throw it away. Jesus is not calling for half measures here. He is calling for drastic, immediate, costly. It's your right hand. Most people are right-handed. Action. No incremental steps. And notice what Jesus does not say. He doesn't say, if you find yourself tempted by a lustful look and a lustful intent, he doesn't say, implement a dress code. He doesn't say, the problem's with them. No, it's what you need to do. The onus is on you. So, if your smartphone causes you to sin, throw it away. And if your laptop causes you to sin, then don't have one. You say, well, wait a second, Kyle. I mean, you don't understand. I mean, if, if I don't have a smartphone, then, then people are going to think I'm rude because I'm going to have to text, and, and then I won't have my GPS, and I'll, I'll get lost in L.A., Better for someone to get lost in L.A. than to get lost eternally. Well, you don't understand. Then I won't be able to do like my work at night and do these errands. Better for someone 
to take a less high-paying job and to have to do their work in a nine-to-five in a public environment than to be lost for eternity. Do we understand the stakes? See, Jesus, Jesus is calling for drastic action. So the question is, does Jesus know better than you when it comes to dealing with sexual desire? And does Jesus know better than you when it comes to your marriage? Verse 31, he says, It was also said that whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, Jesus is entering into here a debate over divorce. In the ancient world, uh, Jews were, basically there was one side that had no-fault divorce. They, they didn't quite have no-fault divorce. It was a fault divorce, but... Um, but you could divorce, for instance, your wife. And by the way, it was always husbands divorcing wives, which is the big, this is part of the deal here, is that husbands divorce wives, and in that world, that leaves them destitute. And so he says, you know, uh, you, could, you could divorce your wife back then. I mean, if they cooked you one bad meal, you couldn't divorce them. But two bad meals, he might be trying to kill you, right? No, they literally said that. There was like a rabbi who said that. And then there was another uh, school, and it was the more strict school, and it said, no, the only way in which you can divorce someone is if the covenant has been broken in some fundamental way, like sexual immorality. And Jesus basically goes with the strict school here. Why? Well, he does so because he believes, first and foremost, that marriage is not a human creation. So it's not something that we can just choose to opt into or opt out of to create and to dissolve. We don't actually have that power. What God has joined together, he says elsewhere. And so therefore, if the marriage hasn't ended in God's mind, guess what? It hasn't ended. I don't care what the court says. And therefore, if you, if you enter into a marriage with another person after that fact... That, in effect, is adultery. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's probably also saying that easy divorce makes for easy adultery because if you think, well, I can just get a divorce, then why not, why not test the waters? But if you realize that this is a lifelong covenant commitment that God has brought and that God has instituted, then you will well, you'll have a higher view of it like Jesus does. But it's not just that Jesus sees this as, a, as God's creation. He also sees it as God's creation for the life of the world, for the common good. This is super important. You know, Jesus started with the sixth commandment, not to murder. He moves on to the seventh commandment, not to commit adultery. After this, he'll talk about the ninth commandment, dealing with our words. So where's the eighth commandment about stealing? It's right here. See, Jesus says, Jesus believes that when you don't fight for your marriage, it's a form of stealing. Stealing from who? Well, you're stealing from that woman that you divorced in the ancient world. That's one thing. Who's left destitute. You're, you're stealing from yourself. Because marriage actually is God's sneaky little way to get you crucified so that you might be conformed to the image of Christ. And so you're stealing from yourself the opportunity to grow in Christ's likeness. But you are also stealing 
from the world at large because marriage is an institution that exists not for itself, but for the other. Our marriages exist. You know, here's, if you're single in this room, I'm so glad you're here, first. Secondly, I want you to know that you have a vested interest in my marriage because it exists for you and for the life of the world. And we have to stop seeing marriage as my means to personal fulfillment. Yes, society will tell us that. That is not Jesus' view. See, it's only in a culture that exalts therapeutic, the therapeutic ideal of individual fulfillment over a binding character of covenant promises and over the authority of Jesus' words that the idea, I'm no longer in love or I'm not fulfilled, be a reason for divorce. Now, let me, let me say this. Marriage is hard. This best marriages are really, really hard. Richard Hayes, in his book on New Testament ethics, says marriage is hard for a man and a woman to build a life together, bringing um, their conflicting needs and desires into harmonious whole is a great challenge possible only through grace. Yes, but this is the grace that Jesus is offering, and this is the life that he is offering for us. So, does Jesus know better when it comes to how we deal with conflict? Does Jesus know better when it comes to how we deal with our sexual desires? Does Jesus know better when it comes to our marriages? And do we really like the Sermon on the Mount? Let me just ask this. Let me conclude by just asking this, though. Can you imagine a world where people live this stuff? I'm thinking about a world. Think about a world where, where everyone was always rushing to make peace and to resolve conflicts and to establish shalom in the world. And nobody said, not my problem. Think about a world, a world where, where bodies weren't exploited, but cherished and honored in all their forms. Think, of, think, about, think about a world where, where marriages were seen as, as existing for the life of the world and where people, people invested in them and all people invested in them, not just the married couples, for the flourishing of humanity. And, and what if the church... What if the church was a community where those who were divorced and had been through that tragedy or single and called to singleness were able to find purpose outside of marriage? Where, they, where widows didn't have to be married again and widowers didn't have to be married again because they found intimacy in community and in families. And what if... What if what if it offered a vision of the kingdom that was so demanding and so desirous that lust became, well, uninteresting? Because they had more important things to do. Because people who, who were single or who were married had more important things to do than, than to lust. And, and what, if, what if it presented a vision 
of a people committed to peace in a war and a world at war, of a people committed to faithfulness in a world of distrust, what if we were consumed not by anger and bitterness or lust, but for the glory of God? You know, that's the world that God, uh, that's the community that God sent his son to create. God who, who had a, a complaint against us, who did not wait for us to turn, but sent his only begotten son when we were sinners to actually establish righteousness, to turn our crooked hearts. God who, who weaned us away from our idols and our other desires God, who is our maker and our husband. You see, when Adam found no helper suitable for him, the word there is the word redeemer. And let me tell you, Eve was not suitable for Adam ultimately, and Adam was not suitable for Eve. They were not made for one another. They were made for God. And that's where your desires are meant to be set. Because listen, This mystery is profound, but I'm speaking of Christ and the church. And so to the bride, I say, come. Come to the marriage supper of the Lamb and feast with your Savior. Let him complete you. Amen.